big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patron, Sarah. Welcome to the team. Just a reminder, we recently changed a bunch of stuff on our Patreon, so there's a bunch of new perks you have access to, including a Discord community and the opportunity to submit your own study questions to be asked on the pod. If you want any of those perks, you can go check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now, please enjoy this episode of Pod and Prejudice, where we discuss Emma of 83rd Street. I think you're really going to like it. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen adaptations. We are here specifically to talk about Emma of 83rd Street. It's on 83rd Street. Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen books, watched many adaptations of her work, and also read many adaptations of her work, including this one. And I, Molly, am doing all of that for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast, respectively. But that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about Emma of 83rd Street, and we are joined by some very special guests. We have with us the authors of Emma of 83rd Street, Audrey and Emily. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Thanks Thank for you guys. Us. Hi, it is such a pleasure to have you guys on our podcast. For those of you who may not know listeners, uh, we actually interviewed Audrey and Emily a few months back about Emma of 83rd Street. And when we interviewed them, we were like, when we finish Emma, you're coming right on the podcast. So before we dive in, do you guys want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and your book? Yeah, <laughs> well, um, Audrey and I are best friends that we've, we've known each other for years and years and years. Um, and during the pandemic, when we were, you know, drinking too much and alone in our homes with our families, we decided to uh, start a project together, something to get us through. We work in television for years and years. And as everyone knows, television kind of went on pause for a while. So we started uh, writing a bit and then we decided to work on a project together. Uh, and the idea of adapting Emma to modern day happened after, well, I know I was like a bottle of wine in Audrey. I think you were not being that irresponsible, so. but, um, it, you know, it came up, we both loved Emma and we thought it would just be so much fun. We just both left the city, New York. Um, but we spent years and years there. So it was our way of kind of a love letter to Jane Austen and the city. Yeah, and the book is called um, Emma of 83rd Street, and it is a modern adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. And um, it explores the dating scene, family, friendships. It's a, you know, friends to lovers book. And, um, you know, you don't have to have read the original Jane Austen's Emma, but it's fun to have read that before you read ours because there's a lot of Easter eggs. And yeah, it was just something that Emily and I kind of did to survive the pandemic. And we wrote it for each other. We didn't think it was going to get where it's gotten today. 
So um, this is all very exciting for us. And you're working on a second book now, right? We are. We are. We are doing um, Pride and Prejudice, and it is also a modern adaptation, and it is called Elizabeth of East Hampton. Oh. So, and that is out in August. Wow. I'm already so excited about that because just knowing it's set in East Hampton tells me so much about how you're going to like plan out the story. Oh, that's exciting. I'm glad other people are excited because it's Audrey and I and we're excited. We're like, I hope other people are excited. The two of us are on Zoom after eight hours of working yes, on this. It's so. getting really good. <laughs> so as you guys are guesting on our podcast, every time we have guests on our podcast, we ask them a couple questions about their relationship to Jane Austen and her works, starting with what is your relationship to Jane Austen? Uh, well, I, you know, I think my relationship, I think a lot of people's was, was high school, discovering like Pride and Prejudice, Colin Firth obsession, you know, and then you, that's kind of your, it's like your entry. That's, you know, the first one's free and then you get into it and you're just obsessed. And I think for years and years, I, I love Pride and Prejudice. And then Emma became my favorite just for, you know, because of Clueless. And there's been, I think, more adaptations recently. But, you know, as you get older, also, I think your relationship with her changes. Now, I think my favorite Jane Austen book is Persuasion, just because at my, the point where I am, I'm a bit older, but you also appreciate the character development and where people are and where, she, where Jane was in her life when she wrote that. So I think that Jane Austen's unique in the way that you, there's a book for every stage of your life. So you can kind of grow with her in a, in a really fun way. But um, yeah, it was definitely me going to the library and, and, you know, borrowing Pride and Precious again. And librarians like, you gotta, you gotta break out. You gotta, you gotta open this up a bit. I'm picturing that scene in Beauty and the Beast where Belle goes in and she's like, he's like, but you've already read it twice. And she goes, well, it's my favorite. Exactly. Except I wasn't quite as angelic. It was definitely me and like, you know, some parachute <laughs> pants and, you know, bad thick glasses oh, no. and, you know, whatever. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, and yeah, for me, I feel like also in high school, um, I went to a girl's school and they had us read a lot of strong female books, uh, authors and and main characters. So I feel like there was a lot of Jane Austen. We all just fell in love with it. And then, yes, at the same time, we were watching the Pride and Prejudice BBC and then Clueless came out and then Emma came out with Gwyneth Paltrow. And we're just, you know, we were so happily inundated with all of Jane Austen and all of my friends and I were just really into it. So I feel like that love has just lasted. And um, it's a long time love affair that you go back to over and over. Yes. One of the best things about this podcast is whenever we ask this question, we get people's stories. And so many people are like, when I was a teenager, I found Jane Austen and it became my comfort. And, you know, I personally relate to that, although Molly may have a little later in life use of Jane Austen, but it's kind of incredible how many different like generations of women have found comfort and readers in general, not just women, have found comfort in Jane and her work. Which brings me to question two. Uh, what is your favorite piece of Austin content? This can be your own book. This can be one of Jane's books. This can be a favorite movie version or, you know, a song lyric that was inspired. Uh, whatever is most on your mind, I suppose. Well, I love that we can say our own book. Am I allowed to say that? No. <laughs> so I didn't know that was going to be an option. My own book. Our book. Um, no, I think that my favorite is, and, you know, I listened to you both do um, talk about Emma, um, the Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, when you, you reviewed that. And it's funny because I know there was mixed reviews. and <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all me. <laughs> that's okay. No, it's, it was so, I was like, oh, right. That's true. Because when that came out, it came out in 1996. I was like, just, I don't think I was just graduating from college. And um, that came out, Clueless came out. 
there was a couple things I was watching Felicity like it was all the same kind of like rom-com angsty love stories so I feel like and Gwyneth wasn't the goop Gwyneth it was the Shakespeare, Shakespeare love, Gwyneth. love Gwyneth you know like there was that so yeah you know when you watch it now you're like oh that transition is a little weird especially being television I'm like oh that's a little odd but you're you know it's still holds so much love for me it's a nostalgic time for me so I was like single and looking for you know a a guy to date, you know, just to have fun yeah. living in Manhattan. So I feel like uh, that movie holds a lot of love for me. That's a great answer. I think mine is actually, I, I think because I, I read the books before any, I saw any movies. So then you have an idea in your, with any book, you read the book and you're, you have in your, this is how it has to be. And you see the adaptation, you're like, that's not exactly as, as it should be. So I think that those, I was always hesitant with that, but, but I love Clueless. I think Clueless is my favorite because it was really like, there was no, mold for that it was just like well this is what she might be like if she lived you know in you know she was a rich girl valley girl now and you're like okay like oh you know you could make all sorts of different choices and I just thought I had so much fun finding the choices that they made and I think that's what Audrey and I really had so much fun with as well it's just like this is not a strict adaptation it's just what were these characters like and I think it's, it's a testament to Jane Austen that it's it translates all really really well like so many of her stories are just women struggling with confines of society as well as trying to find love and that can really doesn't matter I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing <laughs> you still relate to him 200 years later but you know mm-hmm. um I just think that that was so much fun and there was no oh I you weren't watching it being like oh I don't like that choice but that choice is good whereas Clueless it was just all like a Christmas present it was just so much fun and it was a great movie beautiful I love it it is a great movie so third question is which Jane Austen character do you relate to the most sometimes I think it's like um Emma's like sister Isabella with her children and <laughs> like that's how I feel right now you know there was times where I feel I was naive and silly and felt a little bit like Emma but nicer so I don't even know if I have an answer so maybe Emily you should answer that one I mean I have two that are think are so opposite but I think one is Emma because I think the best thing about adapting her was acknowledging the fact that everybody cringes for how they acted in their early 20s. Like there's, if you know everything and you've got the world figured out and if only everyone would listen to you. So I was like, that, it is relatable. You don't have to be a rich girl on the Upper East Side to have that, those moments. Um, and then embarrassingly enough, I think especially because we're in Pride and Prejudice, I'm like, poor Mrs. Bennett. Yeah. Like I, there's a part of me that Mrs. Bennett, she's like, she's just, her husband's like not engaged, like not involved. She's just trying to get her daughter's like set because God forbid. And I just, there's something about that, like the Chris Jenner effect. I'm like, she's just doing what she's got to do to oh, get it done. Like, right? Like, that's just it. So I think that there's a weird, when I was younger, I hated her. But now I'm like, you know, you can't fault her. She's just trying to take care of her girls. So I think that those, in a weird way, I'm somewhere in the middle there. I don't know. I'm still reeling from Mrs. Bennett as the Chris Jenner of the 19th century. <laughs> Incredible stuff. But I really relate to that because I, there are a lot of characters in Jane Austen that I feel like people are annoyed by or make fun of that I actually relate to a lot because they are the most uh, realistic humans <laughs> that that are in the book. And so as much as Mrs. Bennet is like a little over the top and is interpreted very over the top in a lot of the movies, it's true that she's just doing what she needs to do. And it's the same with like, I don't know. Mrs. Dashwood, like she's not over the top or anything, but she is so, oh, I love her so much, like and relatable and just, yeah. I think that's what I love with Jane Austen is that some of them are unlikable female characters. And it's so we're talking about it now so much, but they were 
flawed human beings that had, you know, thing, it, we just relate to them and their wonderful traits and also their traits that might make you cringe, but are yeah. very human. Mrs. Jennings. Mrs. Jennings is so underrated as a character. Bless her. There's also the horrible realization that Audrey and I had, especially with Mrs. Bennett, which is you're looking at these characters and we're trying to figure out ages and translating ages. Yep. And you look and I was like, okay, so the girls are, you know, Elizabeth's 20. I'm like, how old is Mrs. Bennett? And in my mind, Mrs. Bennett's like my mom's age. And then you're like, oh, you know, oh. they she's about 44, 45. And yep. I, I'm like, I just closed my computer. Stepped up, got a glass of wine. I was like, that's okay. us. Okay, we're Mrs. Bennett. I don't need to know that. Thank you very much, internet. Yeah, that's when you like realize that you're like when you're 32 and you're season one Lorelai Gilmore and you're like, oh my God. Oh no, 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 Should no, Should I be no, running no, no. in? Yeah, no, I, I watched Gilmore Girls for the first time as an adult. So I always found Lorelai more relatable than Rory. We love Gilmore Girls. Yes. yes. Oh, I mean, you, you have to love Gilmore Girls if you're a fan of Emma because- Emma and Knightley are Luke Danes and Lorelai Gilmore. Um, A thousand percent. Every time you talk about Gilmore Girls, I'm like, thank God, that's exactly right. (laughs) Just precisely correct. The the sort of like bickering, naggy, grumpy male friend falling for his perky, uh, precocious uh, best lady friend. Oh, yes, perfect. And Stars Hollow is our little our little English town. Yeah, yeah all the It's just yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Of, of I don't know all... if I realized it until you all said it. I'm like, oh my gosh, exactly. <laughs> I love this so much. I've always loved it. Yeah, there was a certain point in time, and this is such a tangent, but there was a certain point in time when uh, I was trying to hide who Frank Churchill was in Gilmore Girls from Molly because he's so obviously Logan, um, and then. <laughs> Molly was like halfway through talking she was like oh he's Logan and I was like yeah he's he's Logan you can't you can't change that for anything. I remember that moment if it was on the podcast I yeah, remember yeah. yes <laughs> yeah but though I I will say I am team Logan and well that's I'm just not team Frank Churchill that's just insanity I we've been over this before I can't I can't you know Friends can have different opinions about things, and that's fine. And speaking of, our final question to get to know your taste in Jane Austen is, what's your hottest Austen take? We're incorporating some of our hot takes. Yeah, we like did. In the, the, the new, yeah. Especially the new Pride Prejudice, and we did some in Emma. Mm. Or we're, we're riffing off of, I think, what people, like, what we, we are hot takes. But I yeah. do, I think, my hot take, and I think we, I, I might have said this when we talked previously, and likewise, but I think uh, Freddie Wentworth is the best Jane Austen leading man I don't mm-hmm. and he I don't there's not that many persuasion adaptations or anything but I, I think he's swoon worthy I just love it I don't know maybe it's because I love second chance romances but I, mm-hmm. I love Freddie I yeah I'm going to stay away from Pride and Prejudice because I can't remember what we've, what we've written yeah I'm like I don't want to say anything yet um I guess so but I'll stick with Emma and I feel like um I guess I don't know if it's a hot take but I feel like Frank Churchill is a very complicated character. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Do I love him? Do I just get that guy because I dated that guy who I thought was a good guy, but he was just a guy. And he's just, why am I thinking this is going to be more than what this guy really is? And, you know, and so I I feel like um, that all, I, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of crazy about Frank Churchill in a weird way. I don't know. Mm. I love that because I think there's a really Frank Churchill is so much fun to analyze as a complicated character. And I think he raises the very legitimate question of, are we giving too much credit to this trash man? 
and are we uh, judging the man by his worst moments only? Mm. Um, I think that's the the balance that Frank Churchill strikes, and it's more fun because usually you can box Austin characters into bad guy, good guy, and Frank is one of the only characters really that is plopped right in the middle, and you can't really... You don't know exactly where to put him. It's, you know, it's yeah. fun. I really like that quote. Uh, I thought he was a good guy, but he was just a guy. <laughs> I, it's usually he's just tall. Is, just he, is he your soulmate or is he just tall? Yeah, right. yeah there you go. <laughs> so with that being said, should we start talking about Emma of 83rd Street? We should. And before we get too deep in listeners, just a heads up. We are going to be discussing aspects of the book that were sort of adapted from the story. So obviously there will be spoilers for how Emma goes, but you guys are all here. You know we talk about how Emma ends all the time. This particular book, if you want to figure out how Audrey and Emily have adapted it for uh, the modern era and you don't want to be spoiled on how different plot elements are brought in, pause, go pick up their book read the book, and then come back to this podcast. But if you want to hear how they have adapted Emma to 21st century New York City, then feel free to stick around in here. So that's your spoiler warning. (laughs) Amazing. So speaking of New York City, you've already told us a bit about the concept of Emma of 83rd Street, etc. But I'm curious about the choice to set it in New York. We talked about Clueless a little bit earlier and how Clueless is set in California. And it really, I think that Emma lends itself to both locations. And I feel like Emma in California is such a is such a specific vibe. And same with Emma in New York. So I'm just curious about what the choice was to set it in New York. Well, I, one part of the, the answer is that, that I feel like Emily and I lived in New York. We love New York so much. So this is definitely a love letter to Manhattan. And it made sense to us so we could, you know, we knew uptown, downtown. We've, we've lived all over <laughs> for like 18 years. I lived there. So in every corner. So I feel like, um, we, we knew it really well. We wanted to incorporate some of the places that we'd been to, you know, karaoke bars or, you know, little cafes, or, um, there's so many places that you can put into a book. Um, and then <clears throat> Manhattan is it's every area is sort of like a little town, just like Jane Austen's books take place in these small English towns. So you're sort of in these small little communities. Um, you know, when I lived in the West Village, I never left the West Village. So that's, I feel like, worked out really well with the Upper East Side where she lives. So I think that that's why we picked, that's one of some of the reasons why we picked New York City. It made sense. Yeah. And I think that especially the Upper East Side, it is unique. And I think right now everyone's, if you haven't read Emma, you know, people are at least familiar with Gossip Girl. This really weird, it is its own little village up there, but it's also the money up there. It's just, it's it's really ridiculous. And, you know, what's normal up there is not normal, really even anywhere else in the city. Um, But you can also be very sheltered there. I think it's very surprising to people who don't are from the city that you can have kids and have them raising them in these really affluent areas and they never leave and they're very sheltered and they've got this like amazing privileged life. You know, and then you go downtown and they're like, where am I? God, you know, and it's, it's like a new world to them. So I think there was something fun about Emma living in this amazing city that, you know, so cosmopolitan, but she has a bubble and it's a lovely bubble. But it, when she leaves it and it, she's challenged, um, it's, it's still very real. And so we thought that that was a lot of fun. 
And uh, yeah, and we got to you know revisit some of our worst dating stories and put it in there as well, which helps. <laughs> yep. those are all in the city. Oh boy, do I want to hear which of those dating stories were based on real life experiences? Because I was reading some parts of the book, particularly some Elton related parts of the book, and I was like, I have been in this precise situation so many times. It's so sad that it's so universal. <laughs> it's so universal. Jane Austen was writing it in the 19th century. That's what's so good. <laughs> yeah. This is not, I mean, this person's not grimy like Elton, but my local pharmacist, every time I walk in, is like, I love your outfit. Like, you look so nice today. Hope you uh, have a, have been having a really great day. And I'm like, like, I'm wearing a mask. Like, you can't see my face. I'm Sometimes I'm just like wearing a sweater and jeans. I'm like, what do you help? How do I tell you I'm gay? <laughs> I know, I have to go to a different pharmacy. Well, um... What I was going to say is this reminds me. So listeners, for the context, Elton in this adaptation is very realistically to me, the barista who is always your like common flirt barista. And then you hang out with him like one time outside of the coffee shop and you're like, oh, fuck boy. (laughs) And I have this memory of when I lived in Philly, actually, I had like a local coffee shop I always went to. And Everyone who worked there was so good looking, but there was one barista there in particular I thought was so cute, like so cute. Every time I went in, I tried to look as cute as possible, like have my money on me. And then there was this one time I was sick and it was right next to the pharmacy where I was going to go pick up a prescription to get better. And I was like in my pajamas walking around and I was like, I can't like. I need coffee. And I had this thought of like, oh, but what if cute baristas in the coffee shop? I was like, there's no way my luck is that bad. I'm going to go. I'm going to pick up a coffee and I'm going to get my prescription. I walk in, no makeup, bunned hair, big sweater. There he is looking me in my gray face. And I was like, that is it. I am never walking into this cafe again unless I look top tier. We all know that guy. Yeah, (laughs) that guy. Absolutely. So back to Jane Austen, one thing that separates your adaptation of Emma from other adaptations of Emma is that you took some of Knightley's perspective on as well. So the book is partially from Emma's perspective and partially from Knightley's perspective. Uh, How was that to write? We had a lot of fun. I think mostly because I think we don't, Emma's always dissected, but what is Knightley's story what's his deal what's your deal like he's just you know and it and the idea that he we get hints of it but he lives next door essentially he's he's on that you know close to the woodhouses in the original book he's walking over he's friends there you know emma's sister and his brother are married so there's this close relationship but we never really get a backstory to it and i think that was true for actually quite a few characters in this but the idea that he falls in love with Emma. And at the end of the original Emma, he's like, I've loved you for a long time. You know, he's admitting this stuff, but it's all news to us. We've gotten through the whole book and didn't really know it. So what, when did he, when did he fall in love? When did he start feeling things? Cause they've known each other for their whole lives. So that was, again, me and Audrey were just writing this book for ourselves. So it was really just fun, you know, exercise for the two of us to write a chapter and like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if, you know, their, their yards connected and they could, you know, follow this little path and go see each other. And, oh my gosh, that would mean that at the middle of the night, you know, we had so much fun just kind of uh, exploring that idea of his perspective. And it um, it ended up working out really well because we he evolved a lot, I think, over our writing. Yeah, I, I think so. And we are so excited how the response that we've had to having his perspective. I think that has been a lot of the comments. Oh, I can't believe I got Knightley's perspective. I love it. So um, I don't know what you all thought, but that we were excited about that. 
I love that. I always, when I'm reading a book, I get so excited when I get to the second chapter and we get a perspective shift because I'm like, oh, it just, there's something about it that keeps the the pacing moving because you're like, okay, I know that next I'm going to see what he thinks about this interaction that they've just had. And it's like chef's kiss. Absolutely. And as someone who adores Knightley, he's one of my top tier Austin love interests. I think he's a very attractive character. There is something about Knightley where, I mean, they have been friends for so long and because of the age difference, there's an ickiness you have to sort of figure out with Knightley where it's like, oh, you were a teenager when she was born and you've known her since her birth. How do you end up seeing her as a woman? Where does that come in? And I think you guys doing the work to show that Knightley has really separated the girl Emma he knew from the woman Emma he is falling in love with and how he really doesn't see her that way until she is her own fully formed person challenging him and independently making her life. Um, I think that adds color to the relationship between the two of them because it means that he's really what he loves about her. And I think this is implicit in the book as well. What he loves about her is that she is so strong-willed, so like bullheaded and so unapologetically herself characteristics that she grew into, I think, more than anything else. So I think there's a lot of value to having Knightley's perspective in a modern adaptation. It was important because I think the age difference, and more than any other Jane Austen book, the age difference is so prevalent. And we, that ended up being like so many conversations between Audrey and I and our publisher, like what is an appropriate age difference? What does this look like? And what is, you know, comfortable for the reader? Because um, the original book, it's, it's, it's a lot, it's like, a the big one. Yeah, 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 20 years. It's huge. And even in Clueless, she's 15 years old and he's in college. Like, yeah, it's too much. It's too yeah. it, it, At the time, it didn't, I don't think it entered anyone's brain. But now that I'm an adult woman, I'm like, oh my God. That's in the 90s, fun. we didn't care. Yeah. Didn't care. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it was, I think it's one of those things where it's like, what well, was okay then? And we just had to really, we spent a lot of time. But it, and I appreciate that, Becca, because I think that we really wanted to make sure more than anything, like he was going to be okay. But what was, okay from Emma's perspective where mm-hmm. she would also be okay with this this shift in their relationship I think it helps also that he went away and like he left her and she's always like you left me it's been years like he went away and he now has this gap of time where she has grown up and you know when you see someone again after a long time they're like oh my god you're so much more mature and older now like you're an adult and she is an adult that also helps <laughs> that she is literally yeah. an adult yeah i also felt like it was fun to have just i was thinking not that this would actually happen i had no idea but i was hoping if this went somewhere there would be an audiobook so mm-hmm. i thought oh wouldn't that be great if there was a guy's perspective and a girl's perspective and oh. we could have it that way and and that worked out so um yeah that was another a thought in the back of our minds oh so. incredible Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster, and together they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. 
The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So we've mentioned the Elton character. You briefly mentioned Isabella's sister. I'm curious about the characters that you chose to keep slash combine or get rid of, um, because I know that like we have Margot, her sister, as kind of an Isabella, Mrs. Weston combo, or at least that's how I interpreted her. Um, we have Zane. He's Elton. Um, Our fuckboy barista. Fuckboy barista. Davina as Jane, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I'm just curious, like, which characters you felt like you wanted to keep pure as themselves, which characters you wanted to combine and how you kind of came to those decisions? Well, I think we wanted to make sure that the Emma and Knightley storyline, which is the heart of the book, the A story, that we stayed true to that. And we knew there were a lot of Austin fans out there, hopefully, who might read it. So that we kind of really wanted to keep that as real and authentic to the original as possible. Then we could play around with all the other characters. So the B story, I guess, of Jane and Frank uh, from the original, we could really play with that and, um, you know, make our our Frank Churchill is Montgomery Knox. And so he's he's, you know, same kind of complicated character. Yeah, (laughs) I have to ask, is Montgomery Knox based on an old dating story from one of you guys? I think he's sadly quite a few. (laughs) Yeah, he's actually a bunch of people like, oh, I dated some guy who actually had a motorcycle in the city. Like, oh, like, yeah, there was he's a bunch of people put together. He's confusing, too, because at the time, that guy that we dated in our 20s, who is Montgomery Knox, we were crazy about. But why wasn't he calling or why, you know, why is this happening? Or so I feel like you think back to that person and you're kind of like revisionist history, a little nostalgic. And you're like, Oh, I was so young and in love back then or whatever I was dating. And, but then you're like, wait, that was a bad guy. Like that was wrong. He's not. a. So again, I think he's similar to uh, Frank um, because he is a complicated character. Uh, Montgomery Knox is supposed to be like that. He also acts sort of as like a triangle with think, which I think is really fun in these kind of um, rom-coms where you're like, I know what's going to happen. I know this character is going to go from, you know, they're going to get together at the end, but how do they get together? What's the journey? And it's always so fun when there's like the complication of a third person, a triangle in there. So I feel like he acted mm-hmm. as that and same with Davina for, for Knightley or our Jane. Yeah. I was going to say uh, Davina was a particularly fun character for me, first of all, because our most iconic Emma adaptation 
to the modern era is clueless where Jane Fairfax's character is simply just being gay. Um, <laughs> Jane Fairfax is the gay agenda. Yeah. Jane Fairfax in clueless is simply the gay agenda. Um, but she like in this one, um, it was really nice to see a Jane Fairfax in the 21st century. Um, and Davina as this self-assured, mature, brilliant woman who threatens Emma because she's older and more like established and not because she's a perfect little doe-eyed frail Jane who I love in the books but also is um you know not the most in control of her own destiny I liked that your Jane had a lot of control over her life so I I appreciated that a lot I think that was a really conscious choice and I think also going back to a little bit the characters we chose to bring forward is that we Emma's a unique book that there's no bad guy it's Mm -hmm. just like the the, the ultimate like miscommunication book like there's just miscommunication everywhere but no one's a bad guy and I think the idea that you know Jane Fairfax can be seen as sometimes like a weak woman who's just kind of going with the flow or and I think that you know all the women in the book are strong um they're all making their own choices and I think the Miss Bates Mrs. Bates we combine to just Miss Pulowski um and she's She's the only one who's really been a victim in the book. And, you know, we, we real had fun with the idea that in the original book, she's in, you know, she's destitute and, you know, it, it really in this awful position in life because she didn't get married. And then Miss Pulowski is in destitute and in this awful position because she got married, because she married this guy. And it was just this really marriage at the end is not the, the fixing of everything. And mm. so that was kind of the choice of, you know, what themes did, you know, was Jane challenging, but we were like, we could have some fun playing with as well. But I think the Davina not making her, she could have been very easily, you know, the temptress who, you know, takes the, you know, or you could have fallen into some tropes, but we were like, everybody's good. You know, our Frank Churchill, Montgomery Knox never lies about being a fuck boy. He's just like, mm-hmm. that's who he is. And Emma mm-hmm. kind of realized that as well. It's just, and you know, that's fine for now. I yeah. think that's what Davina says. You know, some guys are, you know, Mr. Right, summer for right now. And that's it. And that's just the way that is. And there's no other deeper meaning. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Davina starts out as Knightley's girlfriend, right? And then runs off with Montgomery. That's so smart because in Emma, obviously, there's the Mrs. Weston being like, I think that Knightley likes Jane. And Emma's like, no way. But then she like starts to think, does he? And it's kind of a panic, but it's not like she she never goes too far into the panic and i love bringing it to the forefront and having her actually confronted with nightly has a girlfriend and she's like i kind of hate her um and why why do i kind of hate her so i think that was really smart and then it also brings them together when the two of them run off together it's like oh we have this mutual thing that we can commiserate over together that was a lot of fun, so much fun and i love that you like that part i was very curious what you'd think when you read that book because I feel like when you were figuring it out when you were reviewing Jane Austen's Emma, uh, I was waiting for you to like realize that they were together, and that was so much fun. So I was like, I can't wait for them for for Molly to read our book <laughs> and see how we put it together. So. Yeah, I was so proud of Molly. She during the entirety of Emma, she was like, "There's something with Jane Fairfax and Frank. There's something." And I was like, "Oh, she's come so far from thinking Caroline Bingley was Darcy's wing woman." Yeah, I really did think that. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say, two, my two favorite adaptations in terms of character in this book, um, well, honorable mention for Mr. Woodhouse, the um, hypochondriac like fitness dad 
made so much sense to me because I like having grown up in the New York area have known so many dads that are like this that like discovered green juice and peloton and are like all right now my whole body is a temple and we're not doing anything else about it this is my identity now exactly but for me uh you mentioned her mrs Pulowski, the miss bates equivalent such a heartfelt rendering and again um once again giving agency to a character because when emma goes to apologize for her box hill Snafu. Mrs. Pulowski shows herself to be sort of so much more self-assured and aware of Emma's shortcomings and it makes for a very, very touching scene. For our listeners, I won't say anything else about it. But then for me, like the true brilliance, like the great achievement for you guys in terms of taking a character and heightening it was your adaptation of Robert Martin. Yeah. Um, Because... (laughs) When we were, like, originally reading the book, when I was reading the book, obviously our Harriet character has, Nadine has a boyfriend from the Midwest who's kind of a schlub. And I was like, ooh, Robert Martin, not a good look here. Maybe we're changing the story. Maybe we're uh, just not rooting for our boy Marty. And then, like, towards the end of the book to realize that our Robert Martin was never Marty, but in fact her queer-ass hairdresser Mateo was one of the great plot twists that I did not see coming oh my gosh we had so much fun it's so much fun writing that yeah and that that the reveal there because I think we had to do there had to be some plot twist because you know even we were working with our editor it's like what is it and the idea that and I think that was one thing that always bothered us like you know does does Harriet really love Knightley that's like would that have been something that really would happen now so I think the switch actually is brilliant because in the book, in Emma by Jane Austen, um, Emma thinks that Harriet likes Frank. And the big mix up is that Harriet likes Knightley. And Emma's like, fuck. But in this one, Emma thinks that Harriet likes Knightley. And then the big mix up is, no, she likes Mateo. And I was just like, oh, that's brilliant because it just it keeps their friendship unmarred, which is amazing also Mateo as like a pan icon probably in my mind um (laughs) I love that uh I love that they're best friends I I started to pick up on it a little bit I was like wait Harry keeps talking about Mateo and I was like wait Mateo's name starts with an M also so I was like thinking I was like am I crazy could this be I was like I don't know but I was really proud of myself when uh when the reveal happened you called that better than I did and not it, very early on I have to say it was like it was like pretty pretty late in the game yeah. but I was still proud of myself because obviously Emma writes off Nadine's two love interests in this um Matteo and Marty and in she writes off Marty in much the same way she writes off Robert Martin in the book but then the way she writes off Matteo she's like oh he's gay you can't date him mm-hmm. And then by the end of the book, it's like, no, actually, he's bi. Um, and I can and I will. And it also made for a, a great gateway into Harriet's entering this world, being something so much more positive than it is in the book. There's no I've created a monster. She doesn't know her place in society anymore, which obviously doesn't age quite as well as some of the rest of the book. And makes for uh, just a really... Uh, one of the the more positive resolutions to the Emma and Harriet story I've seen. So I enjoyed that so much. I love hearing that. It is so fun to hear 
the details of what you thought. Like that is, I, I, it blows us away. I really, and I feel like for us, you know, female friendships are so strong. Like you don't, I, I'd never loved that part of the book of mm-hmm. the original Emma. I, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's not my favorite part. So I think we were very conscious with how we approached all the female relationships in this book. You know, there is girl code, you know, you do have your best friends. And when they're your best friend, they, that's this really strong relationship. We didn't want to mess with that too much. We wanted to honor it. So I'm so glad that you liked that part. Absolutely. Um, all right. I think Molly, does that take us to our next question? Oh yeah. Okay. So what do you think of as the most essential element of Jane Austen's Emma that you wanted to bring into the modern era, the character, not the book? (laughs) Well, I think that, I mean, I think it's just because it is named after her. I think one thing about Emma that I think is one of people's major gripe with her, but I think is like, honestly, the key to why she's wonderful is that um, she's flawed. She's very flawed. And yes, she grows up and she matures, but those, some of those flaws are just her. And rather than fixing them, she just embraces them and nightly learns to love them. And that, you know, as women, that's something that we still have to grapple with, like being likable and making sure we change and like sanitize ourselves. And sometimes we can have weird quirks or, you know, be abrasive and that doesn't need fixing. And so I think that we were very conscious that she's this person who knows everything. He's not gay. Like she just knows, she doesn't, she's never asked Mateo if he's gay. Like she's just saying, no, he's gay. And like, she knows everything. She knows how the world works. She's all set. Um, And she doesn't, she's, she's, you know, a snob and she's a little arrogant, but she loves people. And she becomes more self-aware, but she doesn't need fixing. And that was just something that I think we were conscious of. And part of the reason I think we both love her so much. She's just, she's just like every other woman. We don't need to be fixed. We can be aware of ourselves, but that doesn't mean that we're broken. Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, the she's obviously a clueless character, but I'm, tss, but I know I'm so sorry, <laughs> but I loved how in this book, like the thing that she's clueless about, I mean, she's clueless about a lot of stuff like you've just mentioned, but she is so certain the entire book that she has a job when she gets out of grad school. And she thinks that it's just going to fall into her lap because she is good at what she does. She doesn't think that it would ever fall into her lap because of who she is, because of what her name is. And when she hears that from the interviewer when she goes in for the interview and they're like, well, you're a Woodhouse. That brings her crashing down to earth. And she's like, I want to do this because of my skills and my intellect. And all of a sudden she's like confronted with this reality of the world. Like Emma's always living in some other world that we've talked about this in Clueless as well, but like she's just living in a world that doesn't actually exist. Like we're all surrounding Emma, but we're not in the same world that she's in. So she just completely misread what was going to happen when she went in for this interview. And I think that that uh, it hits really hard because the whole book, she's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to be fine when I'm done with, with school. And then she's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And she is, but she just, it's not how she pictured it. And I exactly. think that's that's what it is. It's like the challenging of that and that choice from her, whether she just accepts that or she actually tries to make her own way. I love that you guys reward Emma ceding her privilege as well in the book, because what you really see is that through discovering how much of an advantage she has in the interview process at the net, she also discovers that the job is wrong for her and that there are opportunities she may have overlooked because she was so focused on 
this one job and getting it through her only her skills. And when she learns sort of she'll never just get that job through skill, but through her privilege, she decides to decline it and then forges her own path in a job that feels much more suited to the character you guys created. So it it was really nice. And I think it handles nicely with ultimately how she handles Nadine, her friend, and ceding some of like the privilege and power to Nadine at the end of the book, the Harriet equivalent. Um, it's a credit to Emma that her humbling process really ultimately benefits her and everybody around her. Because the humbling of Emma Woodhouse could be the other name of the book in any adaptation. It's true. Well said. Yes. So what about other characters like Knightley and Harriet slash Nadine? What uh, would you say are the most essential elements of them that you wanted to carry over? I think with Harriet, with Nadine, one thing that we were, and this was early, I feel like, because she's a, she is a really blank slate of a character. <laughs> like, yeah, she just, that was... To the point where that's a plot point. Like, no one knows where this girl came from. She disappears, and, and yeah. Emma attaches this backstory to her that's really out of thin air. But that she's also, all these flaws that Emma feels like she's got to fix in her also don't have to be fixed. But I think one thing we wanted to carry over was that Emma learns as much from her as she learns from Emma in a, in a, in a way that's, that I think is hinted at in the original book. But I think the class thing of staying where you are and don't, you know, over, you become overly ambitious is lost in that narrative that we wanted to get rid of. So I think that idea that it's a symbiotic relationship, that they both kind of grow with each other in different ways. I love that. And then nightly, I don't know, Audrey, like, I know. I'm like, just... I think you said it before, like he, it was, you know, we didn't really know what he was thinking. So he, we got to kind of play with that as well. So I'm not, I don't know if we have the exact answer for that. Maybe the most essential element was that he's hot. He's yeah. Hot. That he's, you know, <laughs> that there's this grumpy, I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah. But he also, that was also something that he's not, that didn't, you don't realize it till you're trying to adapt it that Jane Austen did a good job is that he could have easily gone dad father figure area which yeah. would have been weird or really bully that would have been a weird relationship so there's a weird fine line with him where it's coming from a place of love I mean we wrote some lines and then we'd go back to it, like oh god no that's just mean yes you would never say that that's so mean so we had to yeah. One of my favorite things that you did was in their fight at the end when they're they're fighting but they're about to hook up also Instead of him saying the line that he has in the book, Emma, um, which was like, I've lectured you and you've borne it as no woman could ever have done. You gave that to Emma and she's like, I can never win with you. You lecture me. You hold me to ridiculous standards. And I just sit here and take it. And she's like, why are you like this? And he's like, why am I like this? So I think that, <laughs> that it really gave her a lot of agency um, yeah. to like clap back at him like that. I love that. And I do feel like we when we the first pass of the book, like we finished and Knightley was different than the, what we started in the beginning. And we kind of went back and we're like, this plays differently now. He, We needed to make sense to the man that we created at the end. Mm. So there, it, he was a little challenging to figure that, that out. Absolutely. Which kind of brings us to a new question as well. And you may have just answered it, but who was the hardest character to adapt? to the 21st century. I do think it was, I think it might've been Knightley. I mean, I think by the end he was absolutely, I think he's, he, he's my guy. Like it's just amazing. I swoon over him, but I think he was a little difficult to nail down. I think there was that dynamic 
that we didn't want him to, you know, be yelling at her and being a bully, like that they had to get to equal ground. And I think that was kind of hard to get to. And you had to have this backstory already that they were so familiar with each other, but what's too familiar, what makes sense? It, it was kind of an adjustment. And we, I feel like that was kind of the harder thing back and forth that we had to figure out. And putting his point of view in, because we kind of did that later, that kind of made it us understand who his character is. When Emily and I do, when we work together, we create like um, casting because we used to work in television. We kind of approach it the way we do with TV and we put together like a casting document and you know who this person is and kind of their, uh, you know, characteristics, even if it's not going anywhere, like even if it won't even get into the book, just so that we really understand that person. And I don't feel like we really got nightly till kind of towards the end. And then we really nailed it and we're very happy with him. But he was a little harder. See, I would say, Aj, I think oh. our hardest character, and it wasn't because of the character, but because you and I read them so differently. Oh, is Frank Churchill, Montgomery. Oh, Hodge. that's true. Because you love, I mean, you're like, he's great. He's great. He's just misunderstood. And I'm like, he's an asshole. <laughs> so like, we had to like, we kept going back and forth. We're like, what is it? And so we really, there was such a, I mean, mm -hmm. became this happy medium. And I think that's exactly who he is. He's, he's unabashedly himself. And some people see him as an asshole. And some people see him as like, oh my God, he's so dreamy. And I think, but that was, I feel like that was the only one where you and I were like, mm -hmm. we, 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 everything else you and I were clicking on. And I'm like, he, why are we making him attractive? He's all, no, this isn't. But then mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. oh, actually, no, actually you're right. She would No, Yeah, it's absolutely how he would be. So um, it was fun. But I think for between the two of us trying to find where he, he landed was hard. You are right. That is totally true. That is what happened. <laughs> it was like two years ago. We blocked we were, it. We blocked it. I mind. did. It's true. I really was. At, yeah. <laughs> but I do feel like I kind of grew the way Emma did. So in the beginning, I feel like he's kind of like hot, cool guy. And then by the end, you're like, hey, he's kind of gross. So um, yeah, I feel like we got to the right, right place with him. But yes, you're right. That was difficult. That's so funny. I'm listening to this Gilmore Girls podcast right now, Gilmore Today, <laughs> if anyone else is listening to it. And uh, the two hosts, one of them is Team Jess and one is Team Logan. And the conversation that you guys just had about Montgomery Knox is like the exact same thing that they were talking about with Logan. This is what I'm saying. Frank Churchill is Logan. He is. He is. <laughs> no, he is. He is. Yeah. So on that note, which of the characters was the easiest to adopt to the 21st century slash the most fun either one emma i feel like emma yeah definitely it's shockingly easy i don't know if that's a good thing or just a condemnation of how women have evolved in the world that like <laughs> yeah. you can plop her in but i think that was actually part of the motivation why we decided to do this in the first place we're like she is so like so many girls that we knew in the upper east side who that you know that was their world and they you know of course you know i'm gonna go back to school shopping at Bergdorf's. Why would, is that weird? And it was like, and they didn't have any frame of reference for anything else, but that, you know, as you were saying, Molly, that like rarefied air that they breathed in, you know, the Upper East Side. So uh, I think we were shocked at how easy she was to adapt, that she just it really fit itself. in, which is part of the reason her name, we didn't bother changing her Knightley's name. I'm like, that that just is Emma. That's just Emma Woodhouse. That's who she is. She's in the Upper East Side. So um I think that was probably, I don't, I feel like that's kind of a cop-out answer, but it, no, I, you're right. I agree. That's it, it. All of a sudden you're like, this is just kind of writing itself. Like this makes sense to me. Yeah. It was Emma. Yeah. I love that. I don't think that's a cop-out answer at all. She is, Not at all. <laughs> she is the titular character. So, and also I think in some ways, Austin's most, um, ahead of her time heroine. Absolutely. Yeah. She just reads very modern already, even though she's a quote unquote, unlikable 
main character, she's also a very relatable one. Yeah. Our last question for you is, I would consider this, uh, if we're thinking of a genre, my first thought was new adult romance. I don't know if that's what you guys would consider it, but I think that's like the 18 to 25 range. So I think that that fits their ages in the in the book, which also opens it up to being sexy, which it is. <laughs> it is a sexy, sexy M adaptation. Yeah. So my question is, what was the hardest part of adapting it into that genre? And what was the most fun part? Like, obviously, Jane Austen is very charged, but it's not sexy outright. So just, um, yeah, what was the most fun slash challenging parts of adapting into a new adult romance? Well, I feel like that was doing that part was the most fun. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like writing all those spicy scenes, I think that I mean, we just, if you think back, it was the beginning of the pandemic and we were just so like, ugh. so it was exciting. It was fun. And I think that that, you know, by the, by the end, it became not so, oh, look what we're doing, you know, we're just <laughs> writing a book and it got very like, um, like mechanical, like, well, her arm can't be here for arm, you know, like, cause we're writing this together. But, um, but at the beginning it was like, <laughs> it was like, it has to make sense when these positions are in. But in the beginning, I think that was just the most fun part. Like at that, Emily would send me something and I'd be like, I would be reading it. And then I'm like, just so you know, um, this is gonna, he's gonna hook up with her on a couch and do this thing. And she's like, okay, then I won't do a couch seat. You know, like, so I feel like it, we had that was the, once we got to that part, because it's a, a slow burn, it's angsty, you know, it's not like in your face. It's not gratuitous, we feel. So um, they're earned sex scenes. So um, I think they were so much fun. Yeah, they were so much fun. And also, I mean, like part of the reason we did it, we're like, we deserve an Emma Knightley love scene. Like, we deserve that. We're in the pandemic. It's been 200 <laughs> years. Like, we deserve this. It's been, so we're 200 like, we'll this. <laughs> it's been 200 years. 200 years. Damn it. We deserve this. So I think that that was part, that was really so much of it that like we, we wanted this and we're like, well, we can do it. We'll just, you know, do this. And then, but I also think that was the hardest part because I think at the end you're in like your 27th revision, the publisher's like, Hey, here's your deadline. And you're working out the logistics of like a bathroom with a leg and like, where is this going? And, you know, and, and Audrey and I, like the romance is gone from this now. Like, we're just trying to figure out if this is physically ca- you know, possible and <laughs> So I think that was the hardest part and making sure it still was romantic. We're like, at the end of the day, like this, it's, we, you know, this still has to be, you know, the angst has to be there, the love and the, the emotion. I think any, any, anybody who writes at all can say like, you know, at some point it's hard to see, you know, the woods from the trees because you're just mm-hmm. so in it. And, you know, you, we were scared. I think at that point, like, is this still, is this still reading with these are, you know? So I think that that was maybe the hardest bit, but mm-hmm. um, again, I think it was because we, it, it, it was born out of just me and Audrey hiding from our families in our bathrooms and writing to each other during the pandemic um, and just trying to make each other laugh or cry or whatever. I mean, I think that's what made it ultimately really easy and fun. Yeah. One of my favorite moments is the the dance, the dance where in every adaptation they realize that they're in love with each other. And the one that you guys wrote in the backyard on New Year's Eve Um is like it's very charged, but it's also very sweet. It's the it's like also the almost kiss. Um, I think that's so beautiful, and it's also it's saying the quiet part out loud, right? It's like taking all of the stuff that Jane Austen wrote and all their tension and all of their love for each other, and you're like literally letting it almost happen, which never happens in 
Jane Austen's Emma to that extent. So I was really grateful for that scene. I thought it was really fun. Oh, I love hearing <laughs> the details of what you all liked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it really is such fun feedback. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am also a huge sucker for an almost kiss scene. Like they are my oof. That is like my favorite trope in romances. So this, I was very pleased to see that one there. Yeah, I, I think that wraps our discussion on your wonderful book. For our listeners, if you want to check out this amazing book we've talked about or in, you haven't yet, you should go um, purchase a copy of Emma of 83rd Street. So you can follow along with this discussion with all this context now. Audrey, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? On Instagram at Audrey.and.emily. If you do just Audrey and Emily, you get these darling children that their mother has been Instagram. <laughs> yeah. It's really important to do <laughs> the, the periods between but the words. Um, yeah. Audrey.and.emily. Yes. Get the dots in there. <laughs> I love it. Incredible. Listeners, that concludes our coverage of Emma of 83rd Street for next time. Uh, we're going to be covering the Kate Beckinsale, Mark Strong version of Emma that came out in 1996. So get ready for that. Hey, everyone. This is Becca from the future. And I want to just come in here and correct us real quickly. We said that next episode, we're going to be covering the Kate Beckinsale version of Emma. But that is a lie. We are not going to be covering the Kate Beckinsale version of Emma. We are actually going to be having a discussion about Jane Austen and the queer community next week. It's really fun. And then after that episode airs, we will cover the Kate Beckinsale, Emma. Don't worry, we will get to it. But we had a fun conversation and we wanted to share it with you guys. And future book goes out. Audrey and Emily, thank you so much for joining us. And Molly, until next time, stay proper. And go pick up a copy of Emma of 83rd Street and then let us know what you think. Yay! Potted Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.